Good morning, welcome again. We're at Psalm 131 this morning. It's in the low 500s if you're using one of the blue church Bibles. Psalm 131. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, your words are spirit and life. Make them powerful in our hearts and in our minds this morning so that we might be changed, so that we might learn to depend more fully and more earnestly on the love of the Father. Help us, we pray in your name. Amen. What do you think of when you think of toddlers? Uh, if you're anything like Jesus' disciples were at a couple different points in his ministry, you might not like them very much. There are hard things about little kids. We talk in our world today about the terrible twos, about raising three nagers. But with this image here of the recently weaned child, our psalm today presents toddlers and little kids as a role model, at least some of the time. Uh, They are for us a poetic example of what it means to relate to God in the way that he wants us to. That we are to be calm and content, dependent. A toddler can trust that mom is right there, ready to help me, ready to provide for me. And so the big question that this psalm presents for each of us this morning is a simple one, but a serious one. When it comes to life in God's world, how much of a toddler are you? How much of a toddler are you? The psalm begins in verse 1 with a description of what life is like when you're not like this. Of what life is like when you are living in the chaos of getting beyond yourself. Or maybe the chaos of getting above yourself, too big for your britches. King David says, O Lord, my heart's not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. The first thing David rejects here is arrogance. Uh, This image of the heart being lifted up is a way of describing being full of yourself. Being proud and vain and overly confident. Convinced of your giftedness. Quick to justify your emotions and your motivations and your arguments. Thinking that you are God's great gift to the world or to the church. 
this image of the eyes that are raised high is similar, but it gets at something a little different, I think. If the first image is about thinking too much of yourself, I think this image is first about thinking too little of other people. Uh, in our kind of way of speaking, we would put this in the opposite way. We wouldn't say our eyes are lifted up. We would say we're looking down on people. We're telling ourselves that we are better than them. Uh, we are quick to fixate on their failures and their problems, to compare ourselves to them and uh, magnify their weaknesses. Uh, but the Bible also says that our eyes are the organ of desire. And so the image may also be about desiring things that are way above you, way beyond you. Uh, this is not a criticism of all kinds of ambition or all kinds of hard work, but it's certainly a criticism of a lot of it. No matter how culturally acceptable it is or how good our intentions are. Uh, we tell us in America that it's a good thing to chase big things for ourselves, that we should reach for the stars. But David is saying, actually, no. That's actually a really bad thing when it comes to knowing God and relating to him in his world rightly. Uh, John Calvin, the, the reformer of the 1500s, uh, says this in his commentary on this passage. Just about every single phrase here that I'm about to read to you uh, is pretty much insane to the modern American, the modern Christian, the modern pastor. Uh, we all intuitively believe that we always have to be striving and striving and striving to be bigger and better and freer and farther. So listen to what Calvin says here. Calvin says that this passage teaches us that we should not aim to fashion our own lot. That we should be moderate in our desires. That we should confine ourselves within our own sphere instead of attempting great things. Uh, when was the last time uh, a coach or a teacher told you, confine yourself? Don't attempt great things. Attempt little things. Be happy to be insignificant and weak and unnoticed. To be chasing greener pastures because we tell ourselves, I can handle it, because we tell ourselves, I'm not going to be happy without it. Uh, David says that this green pasture chasing is actually a form of arrogance. And he swears it off. And with the related image, David also goes on at the end of verse 1 to swear off presumption. He swears off arrogance, but he also swears off presumption. He says, I don't occupy myself with things that are too great and too marvelous for me. And it's amazing, isn't it? We're talking about King David. David himself wrote this. He was a man who certainly did accomplish many great things for God and for his people. He was a great warrior, a scholar, a poet. He occupied positions of great responsibility and influence. And here he is saying with all uh, integrity and honesty before God, I don't fixate on the great things. I don't fixate on big things. I don't fixate on wonderful things. Literally, it says there, I don't fixate on difficult things. Uh, I think the first word here, the great things, I think it may refer to the, the big things of the human sphere. 
with the second word, uh, difficult or wonderful or um, amazing things, that's often, that word's often used in the Bible to refer to God's sphere, to refer to things about God and things that God does. And so I think David is saying, whether we're talking about the human sphere of work and responsibility and relationships, or we're talking about the divine sphere of who God is and what he does, David is saying, I'm not preoccupied with things that are not for me to know, with things that are not for me to be, with things that are not for me to do. In the human sphere, there's all kinds of ways that we can get above and beyond ourselves, all kinds of ways that we can occupy ourselves with things that are too great for us, uh, often very easily justifying themselves uh, to us as ambition or hard work or making something of ourselves. The telltale sign of fixating on these things too great for us, I think, is discontentment. We grumble over what we don't have. We pine for something else or something better. We feel sorry for ourselves. We refuse to acknowledge and to enjoy the good things that God's already given to us. We say, God, this isn't good enough. You're not generous enough. I want more. We tell ourselves that we deserve better, that somewhere else or some way else I can finally be happy. We refuse to see how suffering and disappointment might actually be God's way of transforming us and maturing us, his way of drawing us to himself. It's easy when you live in modern day America and you compare to the rest of the world and certainly the rest of history, you have a lot of money and you have a lot of technology. It's easy to think, well, I'll just solve all these problems. I'll just get out of this stuff as quick as I can to find something better that's going to make me happier. Besides discontentment, a related form of being occupied with great things is envy. We make ourselves miserable by fixating on what other people have, by desiring their marriages or their kids or their jobs or their wealth or their retirement. Social media, of course, makes this much, much easier uh, right up in our faces all the time. Entire political careers are built around encouraging people to envy what other people have and promising to confiscate it for you. This is no big deal. This has almost the air we breathe in our society. In the Garden of Eden, uh, the serpent tempts Eve by telling her not only that God is holding out on her, uh, that he's trying to put her down and keep her from being really happy, trying to ruin her life, but the serpent also tells her that you deserve to have so much more. You deserve to be more. If you eat this fruit, he says, you'll be God's. And God knows it. That's why he's not telling you. You should be God's, is what the serpent is telling her. And so that's another way that you can become preoccupied with things too great for me. Uh, You can start telling yourself or surrounding yourself with people who will tell you about how gifted you are, about how you should have it so much better. Start thinking about how much better my life would be if I had more influence and more freedom, higher positions. Ambition, of course, can be a good thing. Uh, There's probably a few few of us here today who are really lazy and need to become more ambitious and need to work harder. But if I had to guess, I guess that's not most of us in our society. Uh, In its darker and more common form, ambition is a veil 
for telling God that his generosity isn't enough. For saying that I know better. I want to do something else. So you have this presumption of fixating on the human things, the great things, closely related to fixating on the marvelous things in the divine sphere, the things that are God's responsibility and not mine. Now, so much of the turmoil of our lives and of our souls comes because we're trying to be God. We're attempting to shoulder burdens that creatures, by definition, cannot and should not ever carry. Uh, Sometimes uh, this might look like trying to be as powerful as God or thinking we're as powerful as God. We think it's on us to solve all of our problems, to meet all of our needs, to protect ourselves and our families from every possible danger. We think it's on us to change other people. We think it's on us to wrestle our children or other people into a saving knowledge of Jesus. We like to think we're the Holy Spirit. We can change people. We can force them. We can make them do what we want. Also, a great deal of anxiety, I think, is driven by this disconnect between our desire to control the future and the hard reality that we can't control the future. It's God who rules over the future. Trusting him to do so with all of his wisdom and his goodness and his love goes a very long way in helping us to calmly and peacefully face our fears about the future. You are not God. You cannot be God. You won't be as powerful as God. To live otherwise is to occupy yourself with something that's too marvelous for you. We can and we should admit our weakness, our frailty, our contingency. So sometimes we act like we're as powerful as God, but sometimes we act like we know as much as God does or that we can or we should. But we can and we will be ignorant as part of what it means to be a creature. A great deal about God, even about our lives, about our very selves, a great deal of it is deeply mysterious. And it's good and it's wise for us to accept the mystery of all these things. There are, of course, many theological questions to which we do not and will not have much of an answer. Similarly, we can misinterpret the past. We're often baffled by the present. And like we've said, we can't know the future. People spend small fortunes in therapy trying to make sense about what's happened to them earlier in their lives. And when it comes to what's happening now, we obsess over acquiring skills and knowledge and news lest we be left behind or lest we be out of the loop. And as for what happens later, uh, many of us fear that as we age, our bodies will decline, our minds will fail us. We fear that we're going to forget our families or that we will be forgotten by them. But in all these things... We have to remember that God knows everything from beginning to end. You can trust him with your past and with your present and with your future. You don't have to know everything. We can't be powerful like God is. We can't be as knowledgeable as God is. But we also can't be righteous like God is. 
Only he can be the ultimate judge of the cosmos. I don't need to carry the burden of trying to bring perfect justice in my life or into the world. We just destroy ourselves and each other when we try to do that. Uh, We also can't and won't be majestic like God is. We can't and won't be beautiful like God is. Only he can and should be the central focus of the universe. Life's not about you. You don't have to live for what other people think of you. And that's wonderfully good news. So that's what verse 1 gets at. You should avoid the arrogance and the presumption that bring total chaos into your lives because when you live and get beyond yourself and above yourself, you're living against who you really are. You're not God. You can't be God. But verse 2 now talks about uh, positively what it does look like. We've been talking about what it doesn't look like. Now it talks about what it does look like to enjoy the peace that comes with being realistic about who you are. The calm that comes with dependence on God. David says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. It's a call to be childlike. Though it's not, of course, a call to be childish. Sometimes the Bible describes spiritual immaturity negatively as being a baby or being a little kid. That can be a negative thing in the Bible. The psalm, of course, is not a call to be passive or lazy in your relationships with God or with other people. It's not saying you can just do the bare minimum to get by. And you can see that, of course, in the life of King David, the one who wrote these words. And you can see it even better in the life of King David's great son, Jesus himself. Uh, Never merely passive, never lazy, uh, never content just to suck his thumb spiritually, so to speak. But you do have a lot to learn here. We need to learn to be childlike. There's many things that we need to become more like with the weaned toddler who's calmly sitting or sleeping on mom's lap. Uh, I think it's first and foremost an image of and a call to trust. It's a call to trust God for all the reasons we've been talking about that he's going to provide for us and protect us. Uh, A little kid can and should and does trust that mom and dad will meet his needs. Uh, So much so that in a good, healthy, normal situation, a little kid is not even aware that there might be some other uh, situation. Uh, It's it's unimaginable. He doesn't even think of whether or not his parents are going to care for him. Of course they take care of him. That's what they do. Uh, He has no interest yet in going out to get his own job, drive his own car, make his own budget. He doesn't need to. And it's in this trustful dependence that the child is also humble. Uh, Humility seems to be the main theme of the whole entire psalm. This proper and realistic regard for yourself, especially in relationship to God. Now, of course, a little kid may sometimes imitate an adult, and we all laugh, these funny things they do. But a normal, healthy little kid is not trying to be an adult. He can just be a kid. Uh, He can just uh, play with the cardboard box. He can just slowly rip apart a dragonfly. He can just do his 17th somersault in a row. Uh, The three-year-old doesn't say, man, I really wish I had a Tesla. (laughs) 
You know, he doesn't say, you know, why does Becky get to go to Hawaii on vacation? He doesn't say, why can't I be the vice president of sales? The child, calmly on mom's lap, is content to just be there. And with God, we can be calmly and patiently just with him. We can, we should just trust him to provide for us. It should almost be second nature to us. Uh, You can also see this kind of humility in the child's weakness. Uh, Even if it's not conscious, uh, the child, of course, shows by his life that he's aware of his limits, sometimes painfully so. Little children cry out for help. And we've heard these stories about orphanages where no one pays attention to little kids and they stop crying. It's a horrible thing. Kids know that they can't do it on their own. They're not yet mature enough. They haven't quite gotten to the point, uh, like many of us in this room, where we start telling ourselves these fantasies about how great and lofty we're going to be. Our family has been reading uh, the final volume of The Lord of the Rings, uh, and in one spot we just got to, this is towards the end where Sam and Frodo are bringing the, the evil ring of Sauron into Mordor, which is the really bad domain where the bad, main bad dude Sauron's in charge. Uh, you have this lowly gardener named Samwise Gamgee. I've told you he's my favorite character. And so Samwise at this point, he has the ring and it's tempting him as he gets kind of over the border of Mordor. The ring is starting to tempt him to think that he can handle all of the power that it promises to give him and that he's going to use that power for good instead of evil. Okay, so listen to this. This is perfect. goes perfectly with our psalm today. Sam felt himself enlarged as if he were robed in a huge distorted shadow of himself. Wild fantasies arose in his mind and he saw Samwise the strong, hero of the age, striding with a flaming sword across the darkened land and armies flocking to his call. At his command, Mordor became a garden of flowers and trees and brought forth fruit. He had only to put on the ring and claim it for his own and all of this could be. Now listen to this. This is beautiful. But Sam knew in the core of his heart that he was not large enough to bear such a burden. The one small garden of a free gardener was all his need and due. Not a garden swollen to a realm. His own hands to use, not the hands of others to command. So you see Sam there humbly realizing that he has limits. He's content. To be a simple but very brave gardener. Uh, The little kid resting on mom's lap is under no delusion of grandeur like Sam was there for a moment. And so when it comes to God and life in his world, we need to become calm and quiet like a toddler. We're not large enough to bear the burden of being God. We're not large enough to carry the loads that he's entrusted to somebody else, no matter how appealing their loads might look. You might want to say, well, why can't I have that person's life? Well, that's not for you to worry about. Let God worry about that. And how do you become more calm and quiet with and before God? Uh, an old pastor named Charles Spurgeon said that this is the shortest psalm to read and the longest psalm to learn. Uh, I have some simple and even obvious ideas, although much of it is so difficult that nearly all of us will spend our whole lives struggling to do them well. Uh, First of all, very obviously, uh, we need to learn to be quiet 
Uh, yeah, spiritually quiet, of course, but I mean like quiet, quiet. And some of us have lots of toddlers in our lives that may make this difficult when they're not living like uh, what you hear about in this psalm. And that's okay. I realize that. Uh, but just as a society and as a people, our lives are just so frantic and distracted and loud that we waste so much time scrolling around on our phones. And so maybe you need to start small, but maybe just try putting your phone down for a little while, turning off music, turning off your podcasts. Just be quiet. Uh, no matter how much crazy thoughts are going through your head or how distracted you are, it's good for you. It's something you have to practice, something you have to work at. Practice being quiet with God and before God. But as you get better at learning how to be quiet, we also, of course, need to learn how to listen. Uh, I mean really, truly listening to God. Sometimes just by being quiet and really listening. But especially by reading and hearing and then meditating on God's word, on the Bible, on good sermons that faithfully teach and proclaim God's word. And perhaps as part of that, learning to focus and learning to be quiet and learning to listen, we also need to repent of all the ways that we have not been like the calm and content toddler, all of the ways that we have been occupied with things that are too great for us and too marvelous for us. We need to repent of our discontentment, of our fear, of our obsession over getting more and doing more. And of course... We need to speak. We need to speak to God, just like David's doing here. This psalm is an illustration of what it looks like to live this way. We need to pray. You can pray out loud, as weird as it might feel. You can write down your prayers. You can go on a walk. You can use note cards. You can use all kinds of different apps that are available on your phone. All these things help you to be more focused and consistent with your praying. Uh, you are almost certainly guaranteed to struggle and get discouraged if you just try to sit still with your phone sitting right there on the desk and just kind of not try to say or, or do anything. Usually we need something to kind of latch ourselves onto to help us. But whenever you do it, however it looks, even if it's only for 10 or 20 seconds at a time because your toddlers are screaming and crying around you, you need to find ways to savor who God is, to remind yourself of what He's promised how he's provided for us. And you talk to him out of that. We can and we should trust the Father to meet all of our needs. We can and we should be calm and quiet, even in a world that's as troubling and as distracting as ours. Jesus promises in John 14, just before he's crucified, he promises his, his disciples that as he ascends to the Father beyond the resurrection, he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I won't leave you. He says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to bring me to you, to bring my word to you, to bring the love of the Father to you. Jesus is saying there in his last you know, conversation with the disciples before he's crucified, he says, because of what I've done for you, you're not going to be alone. He says, the Father is with you. The Father is for you, just like that calm toddler knows. Mom and dad are for him. Jesus says there in John 14, if anyone loves me, my father will love him and we will come to him and we'll make our home with him. We live in the love of the father. We live in the presence of the father. He's with us. In and through Jesus, God has adopted us into his family. We really can, as verse three says here, 
we really can hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. You were made to depend on him. You were made to be little. He will take care of you and provide for you. Let's pray. Father, help us to be as little toddlers, calm and content, not worrying about whether or not you're going to take care of us. All of us fail in so many ways to do this, but we come to you in our weakness and in our failures, trusting that you will provide for us and love us through all of it. Help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus, our brother. Amen.